Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing this morning? Doing well? I'll get right into it. I'll ask questions if, if there's anything I can clear up from last week, especially about heaven and hell, rewards in heaven, uh, and degrees of suffering in hell, a gradation in heaven. Uh, some, some would call it a hierarchy. I don't know if that's the best term to use, even though thrones and judgment and ruling are words used in the scriptures given to the saints at varying degrees and levels. Scriptures that talk about how the apostles will sit on 12 thrones, or are on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Right there, uh, Revelation talks about the saints having rulership. Jesus talks about how there's going to be a seat to his right and left hand, and only the Father knows who's going to sit there. He tells James and John, I can't give that to you. Only the Father will assign those positions, essentially. So we, from the few little texts that we have about heaven and about um, what that administration and society will look like, there and uh, other passages, the Luke parable is specifically important. One person is put in charge of ten cities and another person is put in charge over five. So numbers are given to us. Some are, are greater, some are lesser over what they're over and in charge of and doing. So if, if there's any clarification, we, we have, as Protestants, we have a different view than the Roman Catholic Church, the, the view that they developed in the mid-centuries and, and even early, I would say, maybe in the five, six hundreds. It, it began to develop away from an, a, a proper understanding of grace and justification on gradation. I think they still uh, understand that there are degrees of suffering in hell. They understand that rightly. <coughs> we agree and affirm that with them. The difference is, is understanding how that everything that believers get in heaven, we are still unworthy slaves. And Jesus tells the disciples that even after you've worked in the fields and done your duty and you come in, the master, he says to have this attitude. Don't say, you know, I've done all this work. Now I'm going to sit down and recline at the table and be served. He says, when you come in, you should still be ready to serve the master and say this, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what we ought to have done. So that's still the foundational attitude. And then understanding that the only, the only reason why God gives believers opportunities, time, the Holy Spirit, um, a desire to obey Him is by grace. And so, everything that you receive in heaven, the source of it is still grace. You're, you're not the epicenter of receiving those gifts in heaven. It's only because God made it possible. You deserve hell. And you deserve all the torment in hell that you've accumulated through your evil deeds. But Jesus covered that, and then He also purchased something positive for you. He made it possible for you to love and obey and desire to love and obey God. And then not only that, he decides to reward and grant you gifts that you don't deserve because of your faithfulness. I hope that helps. Are there any questions about clarifying rewards in heaven or gradation of suffering and punishment in hell? Good morning. 
Okay, last week at the end of the week, I posed a, a question about the atonement. Uh, we'll, I, I want to hit it real quick and then move forward, even though, and ultimately I think maybe at the end of Romans, we will circle back to the atonement because the atonement is the epicenter of God's gracious redeeming work. So we can never, as a people, spend too long talking about what Jesus did on the cross for the world. Believers and unbelievers. Okay? That's like the greatest thing you could study. Yes? <laughs> if you think heaven, you know, you want to focus on heaven a little bit and be like, wow, there's, you know, we have a few texts about heaven and we're supposed to study them and they're supposed to motivate us toward love and good deeds and to understand. And so we're mentally prepared. We're not like shocked. Like, whoa, I had no idea it would be like this. God gives us a little bit of clues into what it will be like. But everything that's possible in heaven for us and every joy that you'll experience in heaven and every blessing and every gift and every praise that God gives you because of your faithfulness as a believer is because Jesus Christ paid for it. Every praise from God that you will receive in heaven for faithful obedience is because Jesus Christ made that obedience in your life possible. And he completely covered your sins so that you don't have to be receiving suffering from God. He satisfied the wrath of God for you and then he gave you the Holy Spirit and regenerated your heart so that you could love him, pursue him in obedience. So let's open one with a word of prayer. Talk a little bit about the atonement. I'll give you a couple questions and we'll move forward. We are trying to make it to Romans 11 today on the review. I'm praying for at least nine. <laughs> Lord, thank you for everyone here this morning. Help me to not be long-winded, but to stay on track. And uh, Lord, bless everyone here. Build them up in your truth. Lord, help us to see your grace and to be astounded and awed and inspired by it. Let it change our minds and our hearts so that we may be like you, Father. You are the perfect one. Help us to understand and to see that you've been kind to all humanity, that you've sent rain on the just and the unjust, that you give fruitful seasons to people who do not deserve it, that you grant salvation to people who have no worth or value in themselves or merit to, to, to come close to you or touch you. But Lord, that you came to us and paid for it all through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to be a people together here at Community Bible Church to honor you and glorify you for all that you've done by becoming more obedient, more loving, more kind to one another as a church. Help us to forgive one another from the heart just as you forgave us of great, great sins and many sins against you. Lord, how small a thing it is to perhaps forgive 25 people of just 25 sins in this church. How small of a thing to ask for us. God, help us to be a, a church that reconciles with each other, that loves each other, that's building each other up in unity. Help us to pray for one another, to pray for each other's children. 
Lord, make us more obedient and more holy. God, help the pastors and the elders here to encourage and exhort, admonish, to shepherd, to love, to example to us this truth, and help all of us to example it to one another and to teach one another by love and good deeds and to share that truth also through our mouth and speak of things that are eternal and to speak of things that are good, to speak of things that are noble and worth talking about. Help us to do all things for you and your glory. Amen. Okay, so last week, Romans 4.25. Romans 4.25 says this, He, Jesus Christ, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So I left you with the question, for whom was Jesus Christ raised from the dead for? From this text. For whom was Jesus Christ raised from the dead for? Who is the us? Okay, so you're asking, you're answering the who now. Because of why was Jesus Christ raised from the dead for us? Because there was an actual what? So we're all people in hell justified. We're all people in hell justified. So I'm asking you to begin thinking about the atonement in two ways from this text. There's not just one text in the Bible that tells us to only think about the atonement in one, one specific way. So I'm asking you to begin to think about it from the plurality of Scripture in which God has given us to understand the atonement in its breadth and in its depth. Okay? So... In what ways was the atonement universal for all the world, for all of mankind, for all time? And in what ways was it special for a specific group of people? <clears throat> and that's what I'm beginning you, I'm, I'm asking you to begin looking into texts as you read the Bible and as you study the Bible as Christians. I'm just asking you to look at specific texts where it begins to articulate some of these differences and to look at the words and to ask the questions and what God wants you to think about these things, okay, from the scriptures. So, was Jesus' blood and death applied in the same way to all people for all time? Did Jesus justify everyone in hell so they could go to heaven? Was it actually applied to them in a salvific way? So, Jesus, was Jesus Christ raised from the dead then for them, specifically according to this passage? Well, they're all given a choice, and so they made their choice. Is that what you're getting at? No. No, okay. 
I, I will not talk about human, this is not about human choice today. <laughs> I'm trying not to go there. I'm just asking you to look at the text. Okay, so universal atonement. In what way did God cover the world with his grace? In a general way. Specifically in Romans 2.4, we see that God's kindness, tolerance, and forbearance goes to all mankind for a season of time. And we learn in Romans 3 that God passed over the sins previously committed. So when a person gets saved, how much time has passed in their sinfulness? See, God was gracious to that person. What did that person deserve the minute that they sinned the first time? Death, immediate death and wrath. They don't deserve any more time. Okay? That's God's tolerance, kindness, and forbearance. He forbore. He tolerated their sin for a period of time. He graciously gave them more time on earth. You can read Acts 14, 15, and 17. Uh, specifically talking about God's kindness. Another verse that talks just about God's kindness toward all humanity. Not giving them what they deserve. But And Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5. He sends, be like your Father in heaven who is perfect. He sends rain on the just and the unjust, and He's kind to sinful men. So He's telling the disciples, you can still be kind to everyone. And it's not about, you're not supposed to be dealing out wrath while I'm here anymore. So, in Acts, would somebody please read Acts 14, 15 through 17 for us? But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I want you to repeat that last word. Satisfying your heart with what? Food and gladness. God satisfied sinful people's hearts with gladness. That's grace that you don't get justice that you deserve immediately. Farmers can count on the seasons and God being gracious and kind to give humanity food. It's not an eternal winter. That's what we deserve, an eternal winter or an eternal fire. We don't deserve gladness. But God's given all humanity gladness. This is a universal aspect of the atonement. So the question is, how could that grace come to humanity when God's justice must be satisfied immediately? <coughs> Theologically, in God's system, and you can read this in Romans 3, 24 through 26, about how God passes over sins in the same... This word forbearance is only used twice in the Bible, in Romans 2, 4, and in Romans 3, 25, 26. So they're linked. I believe Paul is linking these ideas, that the atonement does have some universal applications to all mankind. 
God's kindness, his tolerance, his forbearance. He gives people a long life that's full of food and gladness. Some people are, have it better than others, but still, you can say that the majority of mankind has received many good blessings from God that they do not deserve. And Jesus was showing that large kindness to people. God was showing that kindness to people looking forward to this day on the cross. And in Hebrews, uh, I believe it's 9 or 10, Jesus actually pays for the sins of the Old Testament saints. So it's specifically applied in a salvific way to Old Testament saints. It is retroactive. You can read that in, in Hebrews for the Old Testament saints. The atonement is also retroactive, I believe, the way Paul is linking this scripture, Romans 2.4, looking at the depravity of man throughout the ages, Jew and Gentile, and showing how God has been kind to them and given them food and gladness, rain, fruitful seasons, and also Luke quoting Paul here in Acts 14. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. So, now turn to Ephesians 5.25. I thank Pastor Chance for this because I talked to him about this, and he's like, what's the best passage to describe this to the church? So I will do this real quick. So, thank you, Pastor Chance, for showing me this is perhaps the best text to show this reality. Ephesians 2.25. I normally go to Hebrews and Romans, but this, is, this shows a familial, special way. So turn to Ephesians 5 real quick. And in what way is the, the atonement special and only for the elect? Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless okay husbands love your wives Jesus is being compared to the husband here and the church receives special blessing that's specific to a husband and wife relationship namely sanctifying cleansing washing, and glory. Has everyone been sanctified, cleansed, washed, and a recipient of future glory? And so this is the analogy, and it, it, it falls apart if it's not true. I am married to Elizabeth Stinchfield. I cannot love Vicki Hyen or any other woman in this room, the same way that I am called to love my wife, Elizabeth, and be devoted singularly to her, and to have a unique and special relationship to her only. The wife of Jesus Christ that receives this special salvific bond and cleansing is the elect church only. It is not for the rest of the world. You can't, 
he can't marry himself out to those who are non-believers in the same way. So the church is the wife in this picture, as the husband is called to a unified, devoted, singular focus and discipline upon his wife only. So Christ has a special and unique devotion to his church only. That is unique and special. Specifically, that it's sanctifying, cleansing, washing, and future glory is for her. The rest of the world that does not believe will not receive that special blessing. So part of that, and maybe another verse to help us understand, so I, I affirm everything that uh, some people are familiar with the system of what Arminians believe. I don't affirm some of what they don't won't affirm. So I, I affirm passages like these that show that there's a unique and special thing that happens. Specifically, I believe that Jesus Christ actually purchases faith and repentance in the Holy Spirit regeneration of the heart, which results in faith and repentance, and the indwelling spirit, which results in further sanctification. So I'm just asking you to read the text and ask yourself these questions. And to be honest with the text, is there a specific and special thing that happens to some people and not others, according to God's word. Turn with me to Titus 3.5, and then we'll move forward. Okay, I'll start in uh, verse 3 because this is very Pauline. For we also once were foolish ourselves. Paul, who's writing to Titus, a pastor, he says, me and you, Titus, we were foolish ourselves. We were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived, just as everyone else. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, and we spent our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul is describing himself and Titus before their conversion, before something changed, before the light bulb was changed. He... God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. So salvation has nothing to do with human deeds. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. When God's love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so, was there a washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit in everyone who has ever lived? How many people do you see that are not washed? How many people do you know that die and have no sign of regeneration? No indwelling of the Holy Spirit. No belief in Jesus Christ. No repentance. No faith. No love for the church. 
which Christ died for and laid down his life for. See, God's mercy and his love is an effectual love. It, it is so powerful that it has effects upon those for whom it is applied to. And the effect is a regeneration of the human being. A regeneration which is by the power of the Holy Spirit, which results in the gift of faith and the gift of repentance, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. What's not of yourselves? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Faith is a gift from God which is by the power of the Holy Spirit, who regenerates your wicked heart and changes the light bulb. He resurrects the spiritual dead. And you can read this in Ezekiel 36 and 37 as well. The promises of the new covenant are seen effectual through the atonement of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is not potential. It's effectual. It's effectual for God to show love and kindness in general to the whole world, for long periods of time. And it is so effectual that it can become salvific for those for whom God wants to make it more specific for and actually change their hearts to believe, repent, and to love and worship Him. And all that was purchased by Christ. Okay. Romans 4. I'm asking you to think about those things. So Romans 4, for whom was Jesus Christ raised from the dead for? For whom was he delivered over? <clears throat> for what was he delivered over because of? Our transgressions, and he was raised because of a, a certain and specific people's justification. Obviously we can see that we are not universalists and we don't believe that there will be no hell. That would be incongruent with the rest of the scriptures. And so in a very unique and special way, Jesus was raised from the dead for those who are justified. And he was delivered over in a unique and special way for those who were justified. Their sins were actually totally covered and the payment for them was paid in full. Jesus Christ did not pay for everyone's sins in hell and then they have to suffer for them too. Does everybody understand that? Uh, while everything in scripture does not have to be humanly logical, <clears throat> According to the scriptures, I would see that that would be un illogical according to scripture to, to believe that Jesus actually paid for everyone's sins in hell too, but now they have to suffer for them at varying degrees and levels too. I, would, I believe that's inconsistent with what the scriptures teach. There's a universal love that God shows to mankind, and there's a very unique and special regenerative love and salvific love that goes out toward mankind in that he shows all humans kindness, but he especially shows some kindness who don't deserve it at all either. And he washes them, regenerates them, marries them, and brings them into himself and raises them in glory one day. And that's because Jesus has the power and the ability to make that happen. I don't believe human beings have the power to regenerate themselves. <coughs> Romans 5. 
God saves us while we were still rebels and sinners, while we were still his enemies, it says, while we were helpless, without strength. And so that without strength makes me believe that human beings have no strength to regenerate or change themselves. It's another word that shows human beings are helpless. They are unable to help themselves unto salvation and to begin to truly love and obey God or to be able to pay for their sins and cover them so they can enter glory. It had to be done by an outside, all-powerful, all-holy source, and that source is Jesus Christ. Esteem Him. Treasure Christ. He's all you have. He's the only thing you have. So give Him your life. Give Him your every service and worship and love because He's loved you. And He's washing you. He's cleansing you. He's going to, by His power, give you a sinless, glorified body one day. So, as you look toward that purity and that pure day to come, purify yourselves with the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have. Obey the scriptures. Do what is right. Do what is good. Worship God well. Love one another. Forgive other human beings of their sin against you. Be kind to all, whether they deserve it or not. Be like your Father who is perfect in heaven and who does such things. While you were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So there's both a saving completely from the wrath of God and a justification by his blood for those for whom Christ died in a special and unique way. There's a full satisfaction of God's wrath and there's a full justification which results in glorification as we read in Romans 8. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, not everyone in hell is reconciled by the atonement. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus Christ is not a potential life. It is a victorious, triumphant life that he lived on your behalf. And it has conquered everything that you could not conquer yourself. And not only this, but we also exult in God, we praise in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. And then we learn about our past life and the past life of humanity. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Verse 15, But the free gift of God is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one man, Adam, Many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift which came through the one who sinned, the gift, this gift is not like the one which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. And that's a special, unique word here for Romans, condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift of Christ arose from many transgressions. See, Christ covered many transgressions. His, his gift is, is awesome. Resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. 
So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all. For just as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of Jesus Christ, the one, many will be made righteous. So the other question is, will everyone be made righteous one day, according to the scriptures? So you have the world and Adam, and Jesus Christ takes people out from the world and makes them under him. Romans 6, dead to sin, alive to God. So what are, how, how are the new covenant people supposed to live? What are, what are the implications? What does this mean? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And so that past passage shows that God's grace is glorified in a greater way because there were many transgressions from which God saved us through. Grace is going to be praised in great amounts because he saved us from so much sin. It was so much in such a way you think, so grace will be praised. But does that mean that we should sin more so God's grace can be praised more? No. <laughs> That's where Paul says no. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. May it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And so what did Jesus Christ die for? Sins, our transgressions, it says. So what should we die to since we are united to him in his death? We should wage a war against sin just as our Savior, who we join ourselves to in baptism, also. We are to, Jesus Christ's mission was to end sin. What is our mission now as believers? In a small way, end our self-sin and encourage others to end their sin. Stop sinning. Do what's right. Christ gave us the model and the example. Okay, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, Christ was raised from the dead in payment for sins, so we too might walk in newness of life. So our life is supposed to change. We are not supposed to be about sin anymore. We're supposed to be about purity and holiness and doing what is good according to God's commands and laws and, and loving one another and being kind to people and stop being so selfish and self-centered. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. One day, John says it this way in 1 John, everyone who has this hope, heaven, and the glorified body, everyone who has this hope fixed on himself, purifies himself just as he is pure. So what is a Christian supposed to do? As you look to the pure Jesus and his glorified body in the scriptures, and you want to be joined to him one day, you're supposed to be about something, purifying yourself, stopping your sin, stopping your sin. Purify yourself through the gifts that God has given you. And as you look to Christ, you know what he is all about. He is all about purity and holiness. <coughs> if you've joined yourself to Christ, you should all, always be about purity and holiness and doing what is good and right. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So we should be about the same business, doing away with the body of sin. So he's repeating himself in different ways here. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. And so 
This all goes to verse 17. 617, where believers do something. But thanks be to God, Paul says, thanks be to God. Not thanks be to man. Hey, give thanks to yourself. You did this. You started this, and you, you pulled yourself up back on that horse, and you won the race yourself. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, is a slave in and of himself able to come out from being a slave? Can he free himself? Can a slave legally free himself according to law? You became, but thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were handed over to or committed to. So who does the thanks go to that you have been handed over to the form of teaching? God. Who are you supposed to give thanks to? That your heart is now obedient to the teaching and to righteousness? God. Right? Not thank God and thank yourself. You guys worked together and made it happen. Don't believe that. You'll diminish Jesus Christ's power if you think it's you plus him. And the Holy Spirit's. Thanks be to God that you became obedient from the heart. The heart change, the regeneration, that you've become obedient to the form of teaching, which is righteousness. Christ. And having been freed from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. So we thank God that he's taken us from sin and made us slaves of righteousness from the heart now. Verse 22, he says it in in another way. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. Romans 7 is all about the believer's now, how he's showing that while we have regeneration and we have new hearts that have become obedient to righteousness and Christ's commands and laws, and we see that the Holy Spirit is at work in us to love people and to obey Jesus and to go on this path toward loving Him and serving Him and, and being a part of the church and doing what is right, the believer still has sin in his life. And so Paul explains his life. Uh, in half of Romans 7, but how Christ has ultimately freed you from the penalty of the law, but then how you still have remaining vestiges of sin in your flesh. While you've received regeneration of heart, there's still a problem with sin that you have in this body. And this is what Paul says in verse 24 of 7, to sum it up. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? I still see this sin going on in my life, though, from time to time. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind, a word he uses, mind, heart, to speak of the same thing, with my mind I am now serving the law of God, but on the other hand with my flesh the law of sin. So there's still a, a problem with sin, but he thanks God that Christ will ultimately completely deal with this one day, but he also worships God that his mind is striving after the law of God, and that will be articulated more in Romans 8. So here we go into Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just like he said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. My mind is serving the law of God, but my body still sins. My flesh still serves the law of sin sometimes. But there's no more 
condemnation judgment looming over me. Christ has freed me from the penalty of the law, which is wrath when I sin. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death and the penalty that the law points to. For what the law could not do, the law of Moses and the scriptures, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. So God did something that the law and, and our human flesh could not do. He sent his own son and the likeness of our flesh as an offering for sin and he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be filled, filled in us who no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's the mind that serves the law of God back in Romans 7.25. So we have the Spirit now. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And so this is my question. Is, is your mind and your heart set on the things of God now? If you've been regenerated, it should. You should be on a heavenward walk with your mind and beating your body into submission and purifying yourself. That will give you assurance of salvation, that you indeed have been regenerated and converted by God. Verse 6, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is, that is set on the flesh is still hostile toward God, and it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Also, I don't believe human beings can regenerate themselves or add anything to Jesus Christ's work, because they're not even able to begin to subject themselves on with themselves to the law of God in any way. The mind that is still set on the flesh does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. Human beings don't have the power to love or to pursue God by themselves. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That right there also is ex an exclusive statement. Before you were saved, you could please God in no way by yourself. <clears throat> Jesus Christ had to change everything on your behalf. However, you are not in the flesh anymore, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. How many people don't belong to Christ and don't have the special effects of the atonement upon them? That's my question to you as we read through this. And as you read through the rest of the scriptures. If Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive, or the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Future glorification. So then, brethren, what's the conclusion here? Romans 6, 7, and 8. We are under obligation not to the flesh or to sin anymore, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. If you are still in the flesh, you still need to die, and you have not been regenerated yet. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you are putting to death your sin, and you hate your sin, and you love Christ, and you love righteousness now, you will live. You are those who are going to be glorified, because this is assurance that you've been regenerated in heart, that you are on a heavenward path, that you love obedience and righteousness now, and that's what you pursue. And you hate sin, and you put it to death. 
you recognize sin, and when people point out your sin, sometimes you might not like it, and other people can go away for a long time. But ultimately, yes, God, you are humbled over your sin, and you strive to stop it at all costs. Because you know that you want to be about your master's business, your Lord's business, Jesus Christ, who loved you. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, putting to death sin, these are the sons of God. How do you know you're a son of God? If you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, putting to death your sin, hating sin, loving what's right, serving the law of God with your mind. We almost made it to the end of it. <laughs> Lord, thank you for everyone here. I'm sorry I'm so long-winded. Thank you for uh, the grace you've shown to me, God. I, I am unworthy to teach. I am unworthy to preach. I am unworthy to have your spirit or to love people in any way or any capacity. Help us to understand that truth and to go out and share the gospel with others in a kind way and in a winsome way, but also with a conviction behind us that there are eternal consequences for every moment of time that we have, good and bad. Thank you, God, for this time. Build everyone up here. Amen.